0: Hey readers and writers, this episode was recorded with Squadcast, a web-based software that records studio-quality episodes from anywhere in the world. Squadcast records at each user's end and then uploads it to the cloud, so even if the call quality wasn't great at the time, the end file is always perfect, so that's a good thing, and it's never lost, which is even better. (laughs) It's a paid service, so there is that, but for me, it's been worth it. If you're in the market for recording software, there's a link in the show notes to get a free trial. Now let's get on with the show.
1: They do vibrate in our unconscious in a way that, so like you take a fairy tale trope like Sleeping Beauty, the sleeping for a hundred years. If I just say that to myself, there's something about it that is ringing a truth that um, is deep. And I can look, I can look at, or I, this is what I do, is I like to look at
0: what is that saying about me or you? Hey, readers and writers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Read and Write. Today, I'm chatting with creator Laura Lewis-Barr about fairy tales. So hi, Laura, how you doing? Hey, I'm very excited. Good to see you. Yeah, it's so nice actually to finally connect with you. I think it's, I don't know, it's been like two months since we originally talked. At least, yes. <laughs> um, so why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yes,
1: well, I was a person that was always kind of struggling between my love of psychology and my love of theater mm-hmm. and A while ago, I was studying to be a psychologist in a transpersonal psychology program. And I studied Jung and loved it, Uh, but I just kept feeling called by the muse. So I spent many years teaching theater, writing theater, directing theater. Mm -hmm. Um, When the pandemic hit, I lost my day work, which was doing a lot of coaching on public speaking, but also mm-hmm. storytelling. Right. And I started making, well, making full-time these fairy tale inspired stop-motion films in my basement. And fortunately or unfortunately, that has really become my life as <laughs> my day job still is sputtering given the pandemic.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: so I spend my days really swimming in fairy tales, and fairy tales is very central to Jungian
0: psychology and healing and work. Okay, Um, I have two things to say to this. One, I understand how the pandemic hobby can take over your life. That is what the (laughs) podcast originally started out as. Right. and also, can you expound a bit on Jung and the fairy tale connection for me? I wasn't aware of it.
1: Yes, yes. Well, actually, it was one of his uh, chief students, Marie Louise von Franz, mm-hmm. who started studying fairy tale, but she was doing it through his lens—the Jungian lens. Mm-hmm. Well, and can we
0: can we pause and just explain what the Jungian lens would be in case readers don't aren't aware?
1: Sure. So Carl Jung, around the same time as Freud, was mm-hmm. doing work that was at first similar to Freud's work, very much about the unconscious. And Freud okay. pretty much discovered the unconscious, mm-hmm. rediscovered it. And But Jung, Jung's work became much more spiritual. And one of the main things he talked about were the archetypes. Okay. Which are these forms, sort of like Plato's forms, they exist within us and within everything as a, Mm -hmm. as a sort of a template. And I'm sorry, like I talk about one thing and it's going to (laughs) reach another thing. And that's how archetypes are. No, that's okay.
0: I'm actually, I'm thinking about the archetypes and I actually have, uh, I don't know, some, website pamphlet pin somewhere that i actually when i'm plotting out a story sometimes i look at the look at the look at the archetypes and like just i don't try to not necessarily try to base a character on them but i definitely do sometimes use them as a guide when i'm doing fictional characters and are you doing um
1: joseph campbell's the hero's journey as an architect as a template
0: uh sort of like i'm i'm aware of it but i'm not following it i don't follow it closely but yes i'm aware of it and sometimes i do try to connect with it and make sure that what i'm writing actually is a good story and sometimes i use that as a base just to compare to what i'm I'm doing against
1: yeah so what if that makes any sense (laughs) total total sense right and it all sort of is interrelated. So Jung mm-hmm. was the guy who started to see these patterns in people's dreams and people's symptoms mm-hmm. and then Marie Louise von Franz started to see these in the fairy tales. So that the fairy tales if you read them psychologically, they talk about what's happening in our
0: in our psychology mm-hmm joseph it makes camp- sense since a lot of them were based on real life events yeah makes sense
1: well and the other thing that is interesting about them is that they they're an oral history right and so right. they came over time over time over centuries and so people's psychology gets filtered through that and the stories that are retold are the ones that are the most impactful, mm-hmm. and they're the ones that are impacting our psychology. Right.
0: It's just a wheel. I just keep going around and around and around.
1: Yeah. And Joseph Campbell was influenced by Jung, and he saw the hero's journey and all the myths, and they're also mm-hmm. in the fairy tales. Right. Yeah i i hope that was somewhat (laughs) helpful to your question
0: yeah uh, i i think so uh we meandered a bit but yes i think at this core it definitely did its job okay we can come back (laughs) yeah if i wasn't clear ask another okay um so i before we kind of jump in a little bit i want to know like why did you choose fairy tales to be the subject of your work
1: well, it was because I have a great love of what Jung's work is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for me, his work is very psychologically exciting, and and it's also spiritual. And mm-hmm. so, um, I've read everything Marie Marie Louise von Franz has written, and it's a lot. And, okay. She's got lots of books on fairy tales and exploring what they mean psychologically. And they meant so much to me. So that's one answer to the question. Okay. But the other answer to the question is that fairy tales are such a fantastic vehicle for riffing off of that they're almost like they're, they're just sort of a given that you're going to get a plot that... Is powerful because it's been circulating for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. So there's a goodness to that skeleton. That why should I create something from scratch when we have this these skeletons around that I can grab and use?
0: Mm-hmm. Why do you think they have such a like? Why do you think fairy tales have such a wide appeal? Yeah, what I, is it about them?
1: Great. That is the question, right? And I think think it is because they do vibrate in our unconscious in a way that, so like you take a fairy tale trope like Sleeping Beauty, the sleeping for a hundred years. If I just say that to myself, there's something about it that is ringing a truth that um, is deep. And I can Mm -hmm. look, I can look at, or I, this is what I do is I like to look at what is that saying about me or you or any of us to sleep for a hundred years? What is that a metaphor of psychologically? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what fairy tales do. Even if we're not aware of them, they are vibrating at a, a really deep level, um, Well, and and I've done research on storytelling anyway, and stories land in the brain in just a completely different way than any other kind of information does. I think fairy tales is just that much more.
0: Okay. Um, I'm thinking about, I can't, well, I had to, I was doing some research for this episode and I was reading some of the... um, I won't. I don't want to say original because I probably was not reading original. I was reading some kind of translated whatever version of fairy tales, and I have to say, you talked about the like the Sleeping Beauty one. I was really scarred by some of those original ones, and Sleeping Uh Beauty was one of those. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting that it changes from this horrific story to something that we look back on with fondness. You bring
1: up such a really important issue regarding fairy tales, those who study them know that they've been kind of whitewashed, especially by Disney, but mm-hmm. the originals are terrifying often. And um, they are cautionary tales about what can happen if you don't live your life in a way that's um, wholesome. Bad mm-hmm. things can happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, but again, I mean, isn't that what makes them kind of juicy but i'm curious <laughs> what was horrific to
0: you well i guess the with, with, with the sleeping beauty one in particular it was just that she fell into a coma she was left alone in the castle this random king slash hunter came by and raped her and then she had kids from it while she was still unconscious it's just i don't know Something oh, wow. about that is just. Oh, wow.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow.
0: And like the other two that really did it for me were Bluebeard um and Snow White.
1: Yeah. um
0: Like learning that Bluebeard was based off of Joan of Arc's um, companion. I, I've forgotten his name, even though it was just yesterday. I forgot his name already. um And he was like, he was a serial killer of children. <gasps> and like as a mom, I'm just like, I'm completely scarred by this.
1: Right, right. It's interesting. You know, I don't
0: remember that version of the rape, but um, I'm not surprised. (laughs) I'm sure I have it in my browser history. So if you want, I can always forward to you after this. And I can put it in the show notes in case anybody wants to read it. But it was, I don't know, I, I was definitely like, wow, I didn't realize. I mean, I knew fairy tales were, that was the point of them in the original part was that they were cautionary tales. I mean, I think a lot of people know that about them. But I didn't realize just how dark some of them were, and especially the ones that were based off of real people. You're just like, holy crap. Like like Snow White uh, was, where I was reading Snow about Snow White was um, she was this real person in uh, Eastern Europe. I don't remember the exact country now. But she was uh, somebody's rival, and they poisoned her. Like, just. She did not have a happy after. She died from poison. Yeah. So I have
1: two things about that. Mm-hmm. I think when a real life story is turned into a tale and then mm-hmm. it's told and retold and retold and retold, I think what seeps out are the original details from the area but uh-huh. what's what remains might be a more symbolic story because fairy tales typically, as opposed to like legends, mm-hmm. fairy tales are very skeletal, right? They usually, right. oftentimes, there's no names, mm-hmm. um, there's no places, there's no feelings. Um, they just retain sort of this structure,
0: right?
1: Um, so even though it was based perhaps on some real thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing about that is there are Snow White type tales around right, the Right, all over the place. And right. they get
0: combined and, I don't know, this and that. Right. It
1: And that kind of proves the archetypes that these universal ideas are sprouting up with their own cultural slant to them, but they're mm-hmm. sprouting up around the world. But... The other thing I want to say is there's a famous fairy tale you might know called The Girl Without Hands. Mm -hmm. And it's, man, the father (laughs) lets her get her hands chopped off or Uh he chops off her hands. I can't remember, but her hands get chopped off. Mm -hmm. And I think the issue with fairy tales, maybe for us, maybe, maybe back in the day, people thought more symbolically. Because Mm -hmm. what the Jungians do with this tale is to say, what is it like to be a woman and to not be able to reach for what we want? And so it is the symbol of losing our hands. There's a lot of symbolism that they see in these tales instead of, because if you only read them literally, then yeah, they become pretty much like, what the hell? Mm Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, they still pack a punch, I think, on our unconscious, even if they're like dreams, even if we don't quite understand them, they still work on us. Right. Um, But I think for our culture, you know, these, these killings and maimings and rapes and all of that, I think there's another way to read those fairy tales symbolically. In okay. the same way that we would read those things in our dreams symbolically.
0: That that's a that's a fair point. I think one of the most interesting things to me about fairy tales is how they do change. You mm. know, you take this really like awful beginning, and then like you said, they're they're oral traditions usually. So Things get left out. Things get changed. They get combined with another story that somebody else knows. And they just, they change and they mold fitting whatever time or setting they're told in. Sure. Yeah. But but this kind of core piece
1: remains, which Mm -hmm. is what I find so fascinating. To me, they are like skeletons that you can put flesh on. You have to fleshen them up. Otherwise, you know, there's not as much you know, to hook into. But right. But as a writer, there's such a wonderful skeletal structure. That's what Mm -hmm. I dig.
0: So what inspired you to start this project? Um, yes, so I
1: have been writing plays for a long time. And Mm -hmm. one of them. So this is an amazing story. I answered an ad in Craigslist. Okay people were looking for a script and they wanted to make a film and they were new filmmakers and they chose my script and we made the film for basically the cost of feeding the people that were there. So it was like a a no Mm -hmm. budget film, but I fell in love with film and I got to edit that film and filmmaking is as somebody who has been writing plays for a long time and hoping that somebody will will produce them, uh, I bought a camera and I started to do my own thing. And it was it was like, "Oh my God, I can finish the writing project. Mm-hmm. I can complete it. i um I started with dolls because I wanted to learn the camera. I was really intimidated by working the camera and mm-hmm. the dolls were very patient and would just wait as I tried to figure <laughs> right. it out. Right.
0: and Unlike then the felt- dogs, they never move.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know, unlike, unlike real live actors. So um, then I fell in love with stop motion and then the pandemic hit. So it all sort of cascaded
0: into me mm-hmm. being in my basement all day long making these films. If you don't mind me backtracking, a bit, what was that first uh, script about? Sure.
1: Well, part of the reason why it was chosen, it was a two-person romantic comedy. So we only needed two actors. Mm-hmm. And it took place uh, in one or two or three locations. It didn't have a lot of locations. So okay. it was a, a romantic comedy about a husband and a wife who have um, are in hard times she runs off to a monastery uh to kind of escape him and he follows her and it's okay. their it's their struggle to get back together and their struggle around um he's an atheist and she's struggling to find what she believes so yeah, it's called interesting cloistered honey and uh-huh. uh it was on amazon for a while and yeah it got into a f- couple film festivals and it was like wow wow that must have felt amazing well and the most amazing was when you do a play and the the run is over it's over Mm -hmm. but like a podcast a film lasts forever and that's Mm -hmm.
0: fantastic so That that is that is really awesome and like I said, that must have felt amazing, like getting into a film festival or something. And then seeing your work on Amazon. I mean, like this one, like, wow, I did that. It's always nice.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, it's been quite a journey, yeah. So what's your method for rewriting the fairy tales? I, I wanna know, like, how do, you, how do you start? Like, how do you pick which one? I'm I just, I'm intensely curious about this.
1: Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I tend to choose a, well, at the beginning I was choosing fairy tales that either just wowed me or I had read something that helped me understand another level of them. Okay. So I would, I would do something Marie-Louise von Franz had, um, had it, the word of looking at something, she had analyzed Hmm. it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) could not find that word. Um. Yes. But I, th- I think as I move forward, so I, I did a fairy tale called The Three Languages
0: that mm-hmm. she talks
1: a lot about in one of her books. And in this fairy uh, tale- I watched
0: that one. yeah, It's one of the ones of yours I watched.
1: Oh, fantastic. So now you'll know exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, first of all, it it's originally a a guy and his father, and I made Mm -hmm. it a woman and her mother, because, you know, I'm just tired of it all being men, men, men all the time, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, But, and this is a classic tale you can read about in many ways, the hero has to learn the language of the animals. And so, the hero learns the language of the dogs, the birds, and the frogs. Mm -hmm. And I started to ask myself, what would it be like to learn the language of the frogs. Like, what would that be? And as I riffed on that in my head, I thought, well, it would be about getting into my own muck. It would be about the willingness to get into the muck. It would Mm -hmm. be about the sliminess of life. And Mm -hmm. so this is what I do. Um, I try to riff on the symbols and see where they take me. Um, and I, you know, as a playwright, I think really in terms of scenes. So sometimes I'm going to riff around a scene. Right now I'm working on, um, the grail legend where Percival, um, goes to the Fisher King's castle and he doesn't ask the question, and he loses the chance to see the grail and find the grail. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the Arthur legends. And um, I've written whole scenes just to be about Percy's, um, I call him Percy It's of Percival, <laughs> Percy's um, becoming a man. To me, that's what the story is about. He has to become a man. In the original tales, he's, He's a jerk, or he's stupid, or he doesn't understand women. He treats them awful. And I don't know these tales that well, that tale, Mm -hmm. so I can riff a little easier. (laughs) I'm not so worried about being married to it exactly. Um, So I might write a whole, and I like comedy, so I might write a whole comic scene about, I did write a comic scene about Percy, Trying to sell the idea of putting cardboard into a loaf of bread to save money for the company. <laughs> okay. and I wrote a whole scene about this. Um, just because the scene was kind of fun, and that's putting mm-hmm. flesh on the bones. Um again, ask me again if I'm not really answering the question. <laughs> no, this
0: is great. How many um I know, like I'm trying to equate it to what I understand, which is is writing, like writing a novel, writing a manuscript. How many drafts do you go through? I mean, do you write in film scenes that you then discard in the final version? Great question. I yeah.
1: <laughs> really interesting. So so <laughs> I've spent many years writing scripts and getting them rejected. Mm-hmm. And getting them rejected and getting them rejected ugh, forever. Mm-hmm. And and then when I started making my own stuff, I looked back at these scripts and went, well, are any of these worthy to be made? And mm-hmm. I did take a couple and I did film them and they got into film festivals, so there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and And I bring that up because I think for me... I'm not sure everybody can get what I'm trying to do in a script. But when it becomes a film, people more are more likely to get it. Or maybe like I've had some screenplays read in table reads with live actors, and then mm-hmm. people get it. So to answer your question, I generally don't intend to write and film and then discard but it is a little weird for me. I, I don't usually get feedback on my scripts. I just don't have people to do that for me. Mm-hmm. And so I get feedback on the films. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> I do a lot of my own voiceovers, so I can fix things um, mm-hmm. using some voiceover. Typically, what, what isn't working is that people don't understand certain moments because, the dolls don't have the same ability as a human actor to. Right. um, But, and, and these, yeah, to, to make it clear. And I think that this journey is such a journey in how to visually tell a story, because I think, yeah, it's such a different, you really have to break it down, right? Mm-hmm, and that was right. my big learning at the beginning was I wasn't breaking things down enough and and hopefully I am doing that more. But you know as a creative that you ask 10 people about your project and you'll get 10 often wildly different takes on what you've done. Mm-hmm. And figuring out what's valuable to you and what isn't is
0: right. a real art in itself, I feel like, especially with creators, I'm sure it's all life, but especially with people who create, I mean, I feel like it's just one giant, constant learning process. You're constantly refining your how you do things and how you make a final product.
1: For sure, for sure. And I admire uh, Judd Apatow, his mm-hmm. work, and he has done some webinars about his process. And, you know, not everybody likes what he's doing. He's just doing it. Right. He's just, just doing it for the, the joy away. of doing it. Right. Well, he's he not- does it for more than that.
0: He, <laughs> he makes sure. a lot of money, but yeah. So talking about the dolls, uh, why why choose Barbies to, as your models? Well, I guess mostly because I'm not
1: um, a physical artist to make my own. Okay. So that was my first, like, I can't make stop motion figurines. I don't have that talent. Mm -hmm. But then I started to see that like there's an unlimited number of Barbie and action figures that I can purchase that um, have such diversity. And I could buy, if you Google anything like Barbie... Barbie ski, Barbie ski set, Barbie anything. You <laughs> find it. And I don't, you know, and so that helps. I do make some things, but mm-hmm. um and I manipulate their faces, as you know, so that I can kind of get some empathy and some human. <laughs> I can get um some hu- empathy through mirror neurons Mm -hmm. or whatever through their faces.
0: So do you rack up a lot of costs doing this? I mean, I imagine that that could be an expensive hobby with ordering Barbie skis and Barbie set, or do you get a lot of them used or secondhand?
1: Almost everything I try to get secondhand. Uh, so. (laughs) I think for making films, I am at like the, the lowest you can be right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I pay I pay yearly for music licensing. I pay yearly for editing software, and and yeah, Barbie and sets and stuff. But um, I think as a hobby, I don't know if it's a hobby anymore. But
0: <laughs> I know I'm sorry. I use the term loosely, but I'm glad you understand yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm trying not to offend anybody.
1: <laughs> no, no. It's um. It's certainly a passion, and I hope someday. I'm, you know, I don't know if you're doing this, but you know, there's the creative part of me, but there is this part of me that goes, I don't want to just make them for no reason. I'd like them to live, and have, and serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And so I do market them in various ways, and they are in film festivals. So we'll see what happens. That's nice. Still it's, it's always early nice to get
0: your name out there and just show people what you're doing. Because not only is it just nice to have people you, that you know are viewing it, it's also nice, like, to get that feedback, too. Like, I know, uh, for me, like, I can write all day long, but it's just nicer knowing that so I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like, it's better somehow knowing that somebody else has read it.
1: For sure. I think it's, I mean, I think about people like Van Gogh, who did it, and then died and then they appreciated it uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i'd prefer to think that there's some goodness that it gives other
0: people while i'm still alive mm-hmm. <laughs> so so what kind of research do you do um to to make one of these like you said right now you're doing the percival series like what kind of lead up do you do before you actually start the writing and the shooting and the et cetera?
1: Yeah, I don't think I do a ton of research. Uh but yeah, I read I read the legends or the stories online. I read what people write about them. I think again I'm trusting what this is what's so cool is that it's a work of fiction. So I have a lot of leeway, you know? Mm-hmm. And I can I think the way I work is I like to swim in it for a while and then I let it go and I just create from my experience of it instead of going moment by moment and trying to find an analogy to that. I mean, some of them like fairy, the Percival one, um, I, I think that one is such like a book length work that I didn't do the whole thing. I took the bare bones of idea and ran with it. Something Mm -hmm. like the three languages, that's only a one, one and a half page fairy tale. I can take every moment. So I guess it varies depending on the source material.
0: Okay. Uh, What do you mean by you like to swim in it? Like just... I don't know, walk around thinking about it all day, or I don't know, describe yeah, that for me. Yeah. Well, the whole reason
1: why I even chose this story is because I kept saying to people, I kept using the metaphor of this is my holy grail. I found myself mm-hmm. talking uh, the, in terms of that metaphor with people about stuff in my life. And I thought, well, if this is alive in me that I keep using that, mm-hmm. then let's read the story the basics of the story. And then, yeah, then think about what, what is it to, well, I guess we're, I I think for me, I have to find the hook of the story. And for me, the hook of the story and that became the title is Percy grows up. So the hook of the story isn't so much, I mean, well, it's two hooks of the story. (laughs) I, (laughs) I had read years ago about this idea that when we're young, Mm -hmm. we often have a vision of something very holy in our lives. And then we may spend the rest of our lives chasing that. And then when we're older, we may get a second glimpse of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that is the story of the Grail legend that Percy Percival screws it up. And then in some versions, he gets a second chance. well I I just can relate to that in my bones but the but the hook for me became Percy's a jerk and he has to grow up and looking at sort of male psychology which I haven't really done before and that became the thing I was thinking about men okay. get a little bashed in this piece
0: <laughs> oh no <laughs>
1: so I the, the I had a voice actor I said I'm really sorry it, the men are kind of taking it in this piece, but you know, it's all, it's all, it's a comedy. So you get to exaggerate with comedy. Okay. Which is what I love.
0: Has, uh, has your Percy, uh, been released yet or are you still working on it?
1: Oh yeah. I'm just starting this one. So okay. I'm, I'm finishing one scene and I have many to go. It feels really complicated. Oh, here's a very interesting thing to tell you. Yeah. When I write, I write without a thought of production. And when I'm finished with the script, I give it to the director, who is me. (laughs) (laughs) You give it to the director portion of your brain? Right. But the director, I don't think about, like, I don't write by going, well, I have this prop or this set, or I know I can do this. I don't go that way. The writer just follows the muse and writes the thing. And the director's Mm -hmm. like, how the heck am I supposed to do this? And the writer writer says, figure it out. And so for me, there's a goodness in that, that the writer can really, I think first and foremost, I'm a writer. Mm -hmm. And then I make films, but... um, and, and I make films so that the writing can live, you know, I'm right. not, I'm not brave enough to self publish stuff and try to get people to look at it that way. I want to, want to find another way for people to get my writing. <laughs> um, but yes, so, so the writing and the directing are really separated in my mind. And, and so I'm, this one feels really complicated and I, it'll, it's always that struggle. How the heck am I going to do this? And I know. Mm-hmm. Writers who don't even make films get in that all the time. Like they get their characters into a certain thing and how the heck am I going to get them out of here? You I know, can that.
0: 100% relate to that. <laughs> I just spent two weeks trying to get a group of characters out of a room over and over and over again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's that it's that
0: obstacle that frees up the creative process, I think. Mm-hmm. So, How long does it take you to shoot one of these? And normally, it sounds like Percy might be abnormal, but... Normally, how long does it take you to like to to shoot and produce one? Um,
1: yeah, I don't know that I have a easy answer for that, but let's <laughs> just let's just say four months, maybe ish. Okay,
0: is to, that like I mean, writing start all the way to like publishing? Yeah, yeah,
1: I, it could be. So I have films that are uh, three minutes long, and I have mm-hmm. um, my longest is like fifteen minutes. Okay. So um, and some of them are just simpler for various reasons. Yeah, uh, you know, Percy's going to be really complicated, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. And the director—it is stop you know,
0: motion, so that does add a significant amount of time to your right to your work. Th-
1: That's always going to be a tough. But there are simpler versions and harder versions. But let's say four to six months. But yeah, within that, mm-hmm. okay, which is very rapid. My stop motion is pretty um, scrappy. It's not this purely, well, you saw it. It's not this Mm -hmm. purely fluid, perfect, um, computer-looking, computerized-looking thing. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, since it does take you four to six months to do one of yours, are you working on multiple at a time? No.
1: No. No, I work at, I, sometimes I've written some, I, I have some written ready to go, but, uh-huh. and then I decided I didn't want to do those. Okay. <laughs> so okay. now I, now I don't have um, any more written. And when I'm done with Percy, I'll write the next. But, you know, I think the advantage for me is I'm writing these scripts as, you know, they're not longer than 20 pages. Mm-hmm. So I really love the short form and I think I don't have the second act problem or the third act problem.
0: (laughs) I mean, I do, but it's all. Right. You do. It's all just condensed. It's like you've got like a short story version of a film there.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I just think novelists, I just admire you guys so much because you get into the weeds and you're really like, you know, you're still 200 or. 100 pages from the end and i don't have that <laughs> right <laughs> so oh, it fits me, me. Laugh. yeah
0: i like that like um i i like long form just you know that's just how my brain works i was just talking to another um another author and they like short short stories. They like doing those the best and I find them particularly difficult to read. So it's just, it's personal preference and it's how like your brain works and how you best, I don't know, transcribe the story in your head and get it out for the world.
1: Yeah. And you know, somehow I am five foot. So I am short. Mm -hmm. My films are short. (laughs) My, my props are tiny. There's something about the (laughs) tiny world, Uh the miniature world
0: that somehow that's me. I admit that is sometimes appealing. Um, I, I'm going off script here for a second, but do you remember the tiny kitchen series that was on YouTube a while back where they would actually bake, but using like a dollhouse equipment, like <laughs> then you have like a little quail egg and this tiny, tiny little whisk. I don't know. That's it. I don't know why that made me think of it, but yes, there is something archetypal, there is something comfortable about small things.
1: There is. I do think it, it, there's something I would say archetypal. There's something like it, it means something on some level, and I could analyze what it is, but... Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Probably something it, about stepping back and viewing it from a distance and...
1: Or childhood or,
0: mm-hmm. or yeah, or or the whole fairy realm stuff. Or I don't know. concentrating on the details. I don't know. I, my brain can go in either directions, either stepping back or getting closer, to to focus on the details.
1: In uh, Chicago, at one of our museums, I can't remember which one, we have this room of these tiny doll houses that are made of like jewels or gold or like they're Mm -hmm. they're exquisite things and you go in there and and it's so delightful to see these (laughs) tiny tiny little and it's a
0: huge exhibit yeah Mm yeah (laughs) so what do you think is the most difficult thing about retelling fairy tales like what's the hardest part
1: Oh really good, good, good. Um, what is the hardest part? You know, I that's a hard question for me because okay. I think is that it's the hardest hard, part? <laughs> I think it's hard, it's a hard question for me because I think I have found the vehicle that works for me. Mm-hmm. And so fairy riffing off of a fairy tale is so much easier for me than starting with nothing. And so I suppose some people may find it hard to flesh out the tale, or maybe some people might find it hard to tackle these violent images in a tale. But Mm -hmm. for me, it's home. So um, it's not the only thing I do. I mean, I do write other... But people keep comparing what I write outside of fairy tales to fairy tales. So there's something to that So there's something inside you that's really drawn to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the trap of fairy tales is not fleshing them out enough and just being kind of literal with them. Mm -hmm. And since the other trap, I guess, is that we've heard them so often that if we don't find something fresh to... To find in them, then I think they may not serve us well if we just retell it without m- making it finding something fresh.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, but
1: but I think I'm that I think that's a trap, and I I hope I'm I'm working against that trap. I feel like I am.
0: No, well, I hope I I I genuinely I hope you are because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it would be just easy just to I don't know kind of regurgitate what everybody else has done, especially with fairy tales. Because I don't know, like you think of fairy tales and you have this very specific image in your head of, I don't know, something that from childhood or whatever have formed and each person is going to have that specific thing. So I think, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that might be the hardest part is trying to find the fresh angle on it.
1: For sure. And You know, they are kind of bizarre, so what the heck does it mean? Like, you saw the three languages, and Mm -hmm. what does it mean? (laughs) Right. What does the end mean? Well, you know, that could be a danger that that it's a little opaque. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I don't think I had read that one before I saw your film of it. I wasn't familiar with three voices or the three languages. Right, right. Right. Yeah. I, th- I don't, it's a grim tale though. It's one of the brothers. Okay. Grim. Yeah. It's just yeah. not one I was familiar with sure. and I considered myself well-versed. So showed me well, Disney didn't do it. So <laughs> fair point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've got two sort of favorite questions. One, I want to know which one is the favorite one that you have done? Like, which is your favorite of your films? And then I wanted to know, what is your favorite fairy tale?
1: Ooh, wow i wrote a film that is not a fairy tale although people have said it felt like one it's called the split okay. and it 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 was this this nagging all right i'm gonna get a little political now just a little <laughs> political okay this nagging thought would it be possible for our country to split into two nations because we are split and mm-hmm. could we physically split? My husband would always say, eh, it, "It'd be too impossible to do. It'd be too. How could you really do it?" They Just tried it once. Logistically, didn't work. right? Logistically. <laughs> right. And I said, "Well, I think we could." And I wrote this little, this little script, and it. I don't. I think because I tackled something so, um, contemporary and a little bit edgy. Um and I guess I just like the way it turned out because it there's the split between a husband and a wife at the same time that the country is splitting. Okay. And um and there's a talking dog and yeah. So I yeah, there's something about that piece <laughs> that is is probably my favorite. Okay. Um favorite fairy tale.
0: That is. It seemed, really... it seemed only fitting to ask at the end. <laughs>
1: That's really tough. Um, fitting fairy tale. I uh, favorite fairy tale. You know, oftentimes it's the one I'm working on, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, and a favorite thing, I've written. I've written a book about using my films, and one way you you could use my films when you watch them is to say where are you at in the fairy tale right now? And that's how people can use fairy tales. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of times I feel like the fairy tale I'm working on is where I'm at in the moment. Um, I love the three languages. I'll just have to go with that. Nothing else okay. is coming to my head. I love. I love many of them. Yeah. I love, I love, it's technically a folk tale, but I love the folk tale that I made the film The Gardener. And The Gardener was only my second film, but it's a very popular one. It's a very cool little tale.
0: I'm not familiar with The Gardener either.
1: And the original tale was called The Stone Cutter. Okay. Japanese tale. Yeah. I'll
0: have to look that up. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Hi, I'm Lawrence. I feel like I've, I now have like a couple of different fairy tales I need to go look up and read the original <laughs> versions of. Um, well, it was great talking to you. Can you tell the listeners where they can connect with you online? Well, and one of see the, some of these stop motion. Oh, films?
1: thank you. One of the easiest addresses is just my name. So, mm-hmm. Laura L A U R A Lewis L E W I S Bar B A R R films, lauralewisbarfilms.com. That's probably the easiest. And then links mm-hmm. to my, um, films. I have eight films, seven films available, uh, on a mythic, um, daily motion channel mythic tales for uh-huh. psyche. They're called, and you can watch That's them. Where for, I found for... you
0: initially. Yes.
1: Yeah. You can, you can watch those seven films for free and, um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have more, but I'm not releasing them. I have, I don't know, seven other films, six or seven other films, but they're still in the festival circuit and festivals don't like you making things too available online. These are my (laughs) earlier films that are free online.
0: Okay. Excellent. And I will of course include these in the show notes for anyone who wants to stop by and have an easy click. Yay. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. This was a great podcast.
1: Oh, episode. What a joy. Thanks for having
0: <laughs> me. Join me next time when I'm going to talk to Corey Bale about her foray into children's books. Until then, keep reading, keep writing, and go do what you do best. You got this. Read and write podcasts, edited and produced by Deborah Zebarth. Theme music was written and performed by Zed Bradley. Audio effects were created by Red Octopus and Black River Phonogram. Show notes and previous episodes can be found at ReadAndWritePodcast.com. Special thanks to Laura Lewis Barr and all the subscribers who make this podcast possible. And that's it. Thank you for listening to the show. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to rate Read&Write on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, drop me a line. I'm always open to suggestions. Also, did you know that Read&Write publishes three episodes a week? Check out the podcast's YouTube channel for Write With Me Monday's live streams and 30-second book reviews on Fridays.